As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. I'm looking at Julian Emanuel. And he's just itching to jump in on this. Julian, dip and rip. I think Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley asked we yesterday. We do this for Ed Hyman. Oh, we I wouldn't mean, do this for anyone we're else. We're going to come off the show. <laughs> Only Ed Hyman would get this treatment. Mike Wilson turned around and said, how is the consensus wrong? He thinks it's not the direction, it's the magnitude. Max Kettner coming out this morning saying first half. First half might be better than people expect. What do you say? Well, look, you know that we're in, in the dip and rip camp. Okay? And frankly, being in the consensus has always been a point of, of bother uh, for us. But when you when you look at it, you know, you're fighting this whole notion that the Fed is going to hike at least 50, maybe 75 basis points more. And the ISMs, both manufacturing and now services, are in recession hey, territory. 50. Julian, let's start here with Chairman Powell. Three hours away, Tom mentioned it, financial conditions have eased somewhat. Do you think he pushes back against that? He does. Do you think it works? Uh, here, here's the issue. The issue is there's a lot of positioning going on in front of Thursday's CPI. Uh, so, so from the aspect of a cap being on risk assets, like we saw basically two hours into yesterday's session, it probably does work. But it could be an entirely new narrative after that report comes out. Your shop invented the synthesis of equity analysis and economic analysis. A guy from Texas did this a few years years ago. Synthesize right now the enduring Ed Hyman belief that America clears itself like nobody else. We will get through higher rates. We will get through all the tech layoffs and all the other drama that's out there. Synthesize the optimism on your floor right now. Well, point blank, Ed has been of the view a good nine months now that inflation is going to fall faster than the market believes. And thus far, it's starting to materialize. His full year inflation forecast is two and a half percent. The golden two handle. Okay, that is an entire new set of circumstances for the Fed to deal with if, in fact, that's right. And, and, you know, that is probably in and of itself the argument for risk assets that we think materializes at the end of the year. At the end of the year, but not at the beginning of the year. And this is what I wanted to raise, because I actually understand what Max Kettner is getting at, people who are saying, wait a second, the data isn't that bad. There has been a change in facts with better than expected weather, warmer than expected weather, and a China that's reopening. Why isn't that enough to sustain things for a bit longer before people hear what Raphael Bosick is saying? I am not a pivot guy. 
Look, no question about it. The, the surprise to me when I got to, to the green room was to look at natural gas and realize it has a three handle on it after what we've seen the last several months. That's a big deal. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, we have this set of circumstances where the Fed is intent on reining in the labor situation. And the only way you do that at this point is to cause, I wouldn't call it a material slowdown, but look, Ed is looking for a couple of negative GDP quarters, what we used to call until the first half of last year, a recession. <laughs> okay, and I understand the dig there, as a lot of people are saying, it didn't actually happen. So what causes the rip? What causes the upside if the Fed is determined to bring inflation down, if they're really uh, going gangbusters there, and you don't necessarily get some sort of fiscal impulse or anything to really drive things in the other direction. Uh, it's essentially this idea that there is a terminal, you know, endpoint to the hiking. You don't necessarily need to see the easing, and the market is probably, and I think we're going to hear this in a few hours, incorrect in believing that there's going to be any sort of material easing in, in 2023. But what it really is is what you have every time at market bottoms. There has never been a bear market bottom without a capitulation, without an emotional volatility spike, and that in and of itself clears the playing field for the next bull market, and we think that's going to happen. If I'm not 100% in cash, where am I? What sectors have value and have protection? We, we continue to think that value has value, okay? It is going to be challenged for the next couple of weeks. At, Dividend at growth? Uh, that th that's that's part of it. Look, we're very defensive-minded right now. Consumer staples, Healthcare and energy continues to be, you know, it's sort of the pinata back and forth, uh, you know, with waves of emotion and, you know, ticks in the oil price. But at the end of the day, even if we dip into a recession, energy is 5% of the index weight and is going to account for 9% of the earnings this year. So you don't think tech can regain leadership here? It's basically the message. In the short term, it absolutely can. But in the long term, it, it, look, the fact is, is that the investing public still owns too much fang. You're a student of market history. I think what we're all leaning on here is this idea that's incredibly rare to get a market low before the recession. Isn't that basically the argument here? Yeah, in a nutshell, absolutely. It, it would, it would, look, again, we have to take it from the jump-off point that everything that we've seen in the last three years is about, you know, has very little, if any, historical precedent. But this is one of these things. Enti the entirety of 2022, we were asked, when's the capitulation? When's the sure. catharsis? When's the emotion? It's coming. And this ain't it yet. Julian Emanuel of Evercore alongside us in the studio today. Julian, what do you make of all this Euro optimism we're waking up to this morning and this dollar weakness we're seeing as well off the back of this China reopening story? Uh, I, in the immediate term, it may be a little bit in terms of the reaction of, of Euro dollar at 107. That's understandable. But the bigger picture is, is that what the last nine months have been about is ridding the eurozone of the psychology of negative interest rates. It, it's very difficult to overstate how important that is for risk assets, for investors, you know, assessing capital allocation decisions, uh, you know, in that part of the world. And, and frankly, when you think at the uh, about the discount for over a decade, <clears throat> during which time the dollar rallied almost consistently, 
it makes sense, the case for Europe. What's revenue growth do if we get an Ed Hyman inflation scenario, which is a 48 or 52, I can't remember, even into outright deflation in the early 50s? What does corporate revenue growth do, given a rapid disinflation? It's certainly going to decline, and it's going to decline faster than the market expects. Is it going to go negative? Very unlikely, because frankly, again, you have the other side of the fact that you've got so much stock of consumer savings, and in that environment, one might be able to argue that you're going to have, I wouldn't say a soft landing, but not a crash to call it over 5% in the unemployment rate. And so you're still going to have uh, that backstop that gets you through the shallow recession to the recovery in 24. If this is true, does that mean that the Fed, the ECB, can remove accommodation completely, go from negative or zero to two, three, four percent without causing a financial crisis, without causing a crash, a normalization that just leaves a couple potholes, but not that much more along the way? Uh, it, it's very difficult. It's literally only happened in 94, 95. Uh, and, and interestingly enough, when you look at 94, that was the only other year in the bond stock quadrant where you had negative returns to both bonds and stocks. Granted, they were nowhere near the scope of what we saw in 2022. But the upside is it is possible. But we reverted back to low yields after that. And it really entered this decade, these two decades, three decades of the incredible bond rally. If we don't get that, if this is the new normal, maybe not this high, but a 3% Fed funds rate, an ECB rate of 2%, does that mean that we can just live with that? That it just is basically money isn't free, but it's not going to necessarily cause some complete re-rating of stock and bond returns for a longer period of time? It, it is possible. It's going to compress multiples. It's going to compress leverage. It's going to compress valuations across assets, but it isn't a deal killer. And at the end of the day, it doesn't depress materially the concept of earnings and earnings growth, which is what drives stock prices. In Europe, this goes beyond the weather. This seems to all go back to China. I think so many of the calls that we're seeing this morning are underpinned by this more optimistic, constructive view on China reopening. Morgan Stanley were pretty blunt about it. We believe the market is underappreciating the far-reaching ramifications of reopening and the possibility that a robust cyclical recovery can occur despite lingering structural headwinds. So I'll make it really simple. I think for a lot of people waking up this morning in the market, they want to work out whether they should be investing in a story where growth slows or investing in a story where growth rebounds. Which one is it? We think there's a very good case to be made for China assets right now. In fact, our China strategist, Neo Wang, thinks we get to 6.2% GDP growth. This year? Yep. Wow. Yep. That, that just, is stunning. Yep, exactly. And, and the ISI Evercore Asian economist feels they get a six-plus handle? Yep. Wow. Absolutely. John, what we're talking about here, in, in my head is spinning over where we were three weeks ago. I believe three weeks ago the world was ending as we know it. And now we've got all this optimism here, and only one thing has changed. Disinflation in Spain. Disinflation in France. Some other place I can't remember. This stunning 6% call. Stunning 6% call on China. And what are we going to see Thursday in the United so States? So I'll answer my own question. I guess it depends where you look. If you look to China, things look better. If you look to the United States, maybe things look worse. And Julian, just as a final question, that tees up. The question we ask almost every single January, every single year, is whether we can get our performance ex-US. Whether that's where the outperformance is. International markets, 
beyond U.S. shores. Is that where it is? So, so it's, it's been a fits and starts type of argument. And again, if you look at the broad sweep, it's because of the prevalence of negative rates in much of the rest of the world and because the dollar has rallied. We think that we're not saying you're in a dollar bear market, but the dollar has topped in our view. And that is absolutely tailwind uh, for the rest of the world, our performance. Julian, this was great. Julian Emanuel of Evercore in the studio. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's go on now to an important conversation for Global Wall Street. Mr. Kentner with his chief multi-asset strategist at HSBC. Max, John's got a lot of important questions. I'm going to do this simple. How do you dovetail your shift into Steve Major's call for low interest rates? Yeah, good morning, Tom. I think it's probably the key question is really around the sequencing, right? Not so much where the end result is going to be. I think it's really a sequencing question. And with this really, really pessimistic uh, uh, you know, these pessimistic outlooks that we got both from the sell side and the buy side uh, in, in the last uh, couple of months, I think there is a very, very strong consensus. And it is my feeling that it's probably the most uh, concentrated consensus that we had ever since the end of 2017. You may remember back then we had this uh, idea of globally synchronized growth that really then went horribly wrong in 2018. And I think that's probably as much, you know, as much of a concentrated consensus as we've got right now. So therefore, what simply what we're saying is that actually against the backdrop of such a concentrated consensus, there's simply a lack of downside catalysts, a lack of downside surprises, and therefore the only way is up. So Max, let's talk about that. So your words, super depressed growth expectations are key. Is there any evidence, Max, here that those growth expectations are captured in the price of markets right now? Yeah. And where you're seeing that? Yeah, I think so. I think when we look at market pricing, so we look at things like equities versus rates, we look at you know, equities versus rates against PMIs, or equities versus fixed income, comparing that against break-evens across asset relationships or cross asset against macro relationships. All of that looks a bit more, you know, a bit more realistic now. And and I think one thing that I would say is it's it's not like we're super bullish, right? It's not like I'm saying, you know, growth is gonna go through the roof and it's gonna be rock and roll. The only thing I'm gonna say is, well, it's not gonna be a rocky horror show, right? So uh, that's the only <laughs> thing that I'm saying, that basically. We're not going to see such extreme pessimism and such ex against the backdrop of such extreme pessimism. Uh, you know, you don't need an awful lot of positive surprises, right, to really make risk assets get going a little bit uh, the upside in, in the first half of the year. It could change in the second half of the year, right, when the yeah. ultimate 
uh, the ultimate level of inflation perhaps then is a bit sticky than thought. But, you know, that's something for in six, nine months time, not something to fret about right now. Why don't I get the feeling you practiced that line a little bit earlier this morning? But 100%. Sure. 100%. Definitely. Max, let's finish on this underweight in cash that you did have. Where are you allocating that capital? Where does it go? We've had some big calls this morning on China reopening, Morgan Stanley, one of them. On the Eurozone, Goldman dropping its recession call. Where does that cash call go now? So it's not going into full-on overweight equities yet, right? So we haven't been as crazy as going from max underweight equities to max overweight equities. So we're sort of dipping our toes. We're going into IG credit, into high-yield credit, into emerging market debt, right? So really sort of dipping our toes into risk assets. It's still a preference of value over growth, right, in equities. So we still actually like European equities. Um, you know, we like European equities more than US equities, really like also in EM and in Chinese equities now. So I do think against the backdrop of Chinese reopening, still a bit of underlying pessimism around Chinese growth, right? So we've just heard a bit of a, a pretty bold call around uh, China growth early on in your program, right? So that's starting to happen now. People are starting to drop recession calls uh, for Europe and for the Eurozone. All that really should be continuing in the next couple of weeks. And as that reappraisal really continues, that should be beneficial for EM equities and for European equities. So what's on the other side, Max, with the Rocky Horror Show potential that you were talking about for the first half that seems to be pushed out? What are you looking for to determine whether you should go back into your defensive haunch? Yeah, I think the defensive haunch is probably towards the second half of the year. Once we've seen the negative rate of change in inflation play out, which is really probably going to be happening over the next sort of four or five months, right? Then we're suddenly going to start seeing, okay, now the negative rate of inflation is in the rear mirror, right? That's the rear view. Now we've played that. Now let's talk about the ultimate level of inflation we're going to stay. Does the Fed have to, you know, does the Fed and other central banks have to keep rates a little bit higher for longer? Does do the cuts first have to be priced out? And that then could be leading to perhaps an accident on financial markets or a retightening of financial conditions via uh, higher credit spreads, lower equities. That's then something for the second half of the year. Once that, you know, once that focus shifts from initially now the negative rate of change in inflation, so the delta in inflation, to the ultimate level of inflation where we're going to end up at. Do you think that the ultimate path for European equities is actually more positive than you previously thought because of this de-emphasis on U.S. tech? Basically, that, yes, there might be a downturn, but the optimism around Europe is sustainable. Yeah, I think so, especially against the expectations, right? Let's let's remember, there's two things that we do in markets. We trade the rate of change and we trade data versus consensus, right? We don't really care where the data is per se. We care about how it pans out against consensus expectations. And I would argue, you know, one and a half, two months ago, it was there was barely any bull to be found on Europe, right? So that's not long ago. That's just starting now, right? That shift is just starting. So I would really expect... There is a bit more, you know, a bit more, more positive, a bit more of a positive run uh, to go for, for Europe, both on the credit side, on FX and on equities. Wow. Max, great to catch up, buddy. Thanks for jumping on with us. Max Kentner there of HSBC. 
Lindsay Piegza with us, chief economist at Stiefel. Lindsay, I'm going to cut to the chase. Our audiences, our viewers, our listeners, their heads are spinning. Atlanta GDP now is a stunning 3.5% plus guesstimate of where we are. The fourth quarter looks pretty good after all the gloom. Where is the assuredness of economic slowdown in this 90 days, or dare I say even Q2? Well, I think the assuredness comes from the weakness that we're seeing on part of the consumer. As a consumer-based economy, if the consumer is not out in the marketplace happy and healthy, we would expect a meaningful decline from that more robust pace as we saw in the second half of the year. And against the backdrop of negative real income growth, higher borrowing costs, right. and of course, many consumers facing the risk of variable rate debt resetting in the first quarter at higher levels, well, that's right. this will compound the pressure You're on consumers. Lindsay, you're reading my mind. The chart yesterday, I believe Zero Hedge had it. Thank you, Zero Hedge. And, and it was, a, I think, a Bloomberg chart. I can't remember. Of the credit card interest rate is a variable rate. I mean, we're all looking at housing and that. But fold into your analysis credit card rates that were 21, 22 percent that are now 28, 30 percent. How does that play in to the caution? Well, it plays in significantly, particularly as savings are now drawn down to near zero levels. Remember, the consumer was very much supported by this accumulation of wealth during the pandemic in the immediate aftermath. We estimate there was an additional about $6 trillion in terms of a wealth cushion supporting consumers. And that removed any sense of immediacy to revert back to the normal labor force participation formation that we'd seen in, in previous cycles. But now as we go forward and consumers draw down that savings, we're seeing this return to a reliance on credit card debt. Now, arguably, the household balance sheet is beginning from relatively uh, a healthier position than in previous cycles, but still, we don't have this unlimited amount of wiggle room for consumers to take on that new amount of debt, and particularly as that debt is now repricing at higher levels, this will compound that pressure, as I said, on consumers, limiting their ability to go out into the marketplace. That doesn't mean that consumers are going to fall off a cliff, but that does mean a meaningful loss of momentum. And again, as the key part of the economy, it's going to be nearly impossible to maintain then that level of 3% growth as we turn the corner now into the new year. So Lindsay, would you push back against some of the optimism that we've been hearing from people who have been pessimistic through all of the second half of last year? Well, I, I think the timeline for the pessimism to set in was extended. Consumers did prove to be surprisingly resilient through much of this turmoil in 2022. But again, it doesn't negate the fact that these outlying variables will weigh on the consumer and limit their ability to spend. There's only so much savings that we can draw down. There's only so much credit card debt that consumers can ramp up. And so just looking at this from a quantitative perspective, regardless of our qualitative uh, optimism, the numbers suggest that consumers simply will not be there in the first half of the year. Does changing the timeline change the depth of whatever downturn you're expecting to happen? In other words, does it make it less or does it make it more as new excesses build up now? Well, I think the depth and duration in terms of the downturn is very much going to be hinged on monetary policy and the sticky nature of inflation. The higher that prices remain, the longer that prices remain in this uncomfortable level relative to what the Fed can withstand, that's going to force the Fed to raise rates higher and potentially keep rates higher for a longer period of time. And that's going to be the scenario yeah. that's going to compound that, that downturn and the duration of that downturn. You know, Lindsay, I know you hang on every word we do. 
And Julian Emanuel is just on with Mr. Edward S. Hyman and their team in Asia modeling 6% plus China GDP. Not that I don't need you to tell me that's what we're going to see. But if we get 5.8, 6.2, whatever, what does that do to exports and imports in your U.S. GDP math well, certainly it's, it's going to be difficult to get to 6%. That, that's extremely optimistic. That being said, it does seem as if there's nowhere to go but up when you're talking about an economy emerging from a, a nationwide shutdown or, or more restrictive zero COVID policies. But that being said, what we've seen thus far has been far from an ideal reopening. It isn't a flip the switch scenario. So it's more going to be a slow bleed, particularly against the backdrop of a number of black swans that can continue to float around those with overheightened optimism, new variants, uh, a, a lack of uh, natural immunity to the virus. Any of these resurgences, as deemed by the government as inappropriate or, or intolerable, could lead back to many of these zero COVID policies. So I do think it's yeah. overly optimistic to think that once <clears throat> the door cracks open, it's going to swing wide open and get us back to that structural right. fluidity that we saw prior to the COVID pandemic. John, pigs are there was on the edge of Bramo. I mean, that's, that's what I noted there. I mean, you know, she's on the edge of Bramo this Look, morning. I think a lot of people waking up this morning feeling like they're being told conflicting things. We've oh, got this huge. survey data in the last sub three weeks for manufacturing and services. Then we've got this big boom that people are talking about over in China, and they're wondering whether they should be pricing in slower growth or a growth rebound. Yeah, Lindsay, what's so important here to go back to your earlier insight is variable rate. John Farrell lives this in England. They're the land of the variable rate, the floating rate mortgage and all that. How big a deal is the variable, variable rate in America? I'll get it out. I think it's a very big deal, particularly when we go back to the conversation we had about consumers. When we're talking about credit cards as a key support to consumer spending going forward, as that interest charge continues to rise, that's going to limit the ability for consumers to access alternative sources of income, aside from returning to a more traditional position in the labor market. Now, this could actually be somewhat of a double-edged sword, but a positive in the way that if consumers feel they can't rely on these alternative alternative sources, that may create more of an incentive for these sideline workers to move back into the labor market and help increase that labor force participation, which, of course, as labor demand outpaces labor supply, we've seen this upward pressure on wages. If we see the reverse occur, that could put some welcomed downward pressure on wages, something the Fed is certainly looking for. Just real quick here, if you choose a data point, you can tell your own story. You can pick whatever data point you want to edify your view. That has been basically the belief for the first uh, couple of weeks of this year. Which data would you be watching most closely for a true read on the pace of how the economy is developing? Well, I think when we turn the page looking at the consumer, I think negative real income growth for the better part of the past year tells a longer term story about the unsustainability of positive spending activity. And that is really going to be the driver of 2023, whether or not the consumer can continue to shoulder these elevated prices against the backdop of negative real income growth. Hey, Lindsay, thanks for this. Lindsay Piexa there of Stiefel on the U.S. economy. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. 
Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Last year in the shock of Ukraine and Putin and Russia, I named my book of the year in February or maybe the first week of March. It was the absolute must read, Putin's World by Angela Sten. I'd never had a book of the year that early. And I'm not going to top it this year with Olivier Blanchard's magisterial fiscal policy under low interest rates. All you need to know is this is the definitive short read with the rigor of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and Blanchard. It is the immediate must read for every economic geek uh, that is out there uh, uh, trying to get smarter, trying to get curious. Blanchard of MIT and the Peterson Institute, the former chief economist for the International Monetary Fund, joins us this morning. Uh, Olivier, Lisa's going to vault into your wonderful new book, a short but, but dense read. I need to go to my essay of the year for last year, which is you late in the year in the Financial Times where you said, everybody calm down. The American public doesn't, con- doesn't worry about inflation at 2%, and the new 2% worry is maybe a 3%. What happens to our financial and economic system if we get the, the, the level of 3% with inflation? Is that the new 2%? Well, that's not that's not my decision to take. It's a decision of the central bank. Um, part of the book is based on the fact that when we had the target of two percent, which we still have, uh, this implies fairly low nominal rates on average, and that really limits the ability of the Fed to help the economy if it slows down. You can only decrease the rates by, you say, if the nominal rates are two percent or three percent uh, by three percent, and. What we have seen over the last 20 years is that that is not enough for the Fed to actually do the job of the ECB or whoever, any central bank. And so I have argued that it might be better to actually run the economy on average at 3%, which would imply higher rates, which would give more room for monetary policy. Uh, and would make some of the issues in my book less relevant because if my policy can do most of the job, it should do most of the job. Uh, if it cannot, then fiscal policy right. has to come in, which is uh, the title of uh, of. And and this, Lisa, is so profound. Professor Blanchard at IMF with Stiglitz talked about 4%, and that was hugely controversial in 08 and 09. And this is a bit of a different discussion, as you and I have heard from his colleague at Peterson, Adam Posen. Right, this question of do you let it run hot? But on the flip side, and Olivia Blanchard, the title of your book, Fiscal Policy Under Low Interest Rates, Fiscal Policy of Trying to Fuel Growth When Monetary Policy Didn't Have Room to Do So, does it get flipped on its head, especially after fiscal policy created the problem that monetary policy is now trying to address. So, as as you may know, uh, 
fiscal policy can do too much. And I think that we're paying in large part the major fiscal policy mistake. Uh, there was no need for the very large programs that we saw in 2020, but more especially at the beginning of 2021, which led to very large overheating of the U.S. economy uh, and uh, supply chain disruptions, which would have been there, but were probably aggravated by it. And uh, in general, overheating in the world. So, yes, I mean, there's such a thing as using fiscal policy too much. I had a sense that although I was arguing for using fiscal policy, uh, the uh, Biden administration in particular was probably doing two, two times or three times what I would have liked. And the result has been indeed, there are some other reasons, and clearly Ukraine has been very high inflation, and the Fed has had to react the other way uh, with, with, with very high interest rates or relatively high interest rates. Uh, I think that's a phase. I think that the book is really written looking beyond uh, the current inflation episode, the current higher rate episode. And one of the thesis of, of the book is that we're probably going to return to an environment in which the rate that the central banks need to choose in order to get the economy at potential is going to be very low again. So we are again going to be in this situation in which there might be constraints on the monetary policy and fiscal policy has to do more. But the point is clearly at this stage, the discussion is very much about the high rates. So there's a bit of a provocation in coming with <laughs> coming out with a book where the, the title of it is Low Rates. Uh, but I would argue that first, they're not terribly high. They're surprisingly low at the height of the battle. Yeah. against inflation. Uh, and, and there is no reason to think that they will not go back to something like we had before COVID. So then where does that leave the Federal Reserve, the ECB, in terms of the balance of risks? Is it to go too far with benchmark rates and hold them there to, for too long now? Or is it to not do enough, given that we are going back to perhaps something that is slightly different than what we experienced over the past several decades? So I think that with respect to the inflation process, uh, you know, I'm, I'm slightly older than you are. And so I've seen it before. And it seems to me, and maybe Tom is in between us, is my guess. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it seems to me that I have seen it before. And the issues are always the same, which is, well, inflation is too high. Part of it is going to go away because part of it is due to energy prices, food prices, and these are going to decline. They have started declining. But, you know, we still yeah. have to basically slow down the economy a bit, and we don't know how resilient the economy is, right? In the textbook or in the simplified stories you hear on the radio, you know, you basically increase the interest rate and the economy just slows down. But you don't know how easily you get to that. Right. So I think that's what the Fed, the right. ECB, and all central banks are facing, which is, should we do more? Should we do less? And then there are two issues, if I, if, if you give me two minutes more. The, the first one is that there are what we call lags, right? Which is that even if it works, it doesn't work right away. And so you have to kind of stop tightening or going easy before you actually have seen the results because the results right. take six months or a year, right? And then the other aspect, which I think is relevant in this case, is that some of the factors which increased inflation turn around on their own, independent of the Fed, independent of the ECB. Right. So energy prices go down. And there is what I've called uh, a false dawn, which is inflation falls, and it is falling now, you know, month to month, the numbers are very, very good. And some people say, okay, we're done. Okay. Please stop. 
Olivia, no. I got that, that is not right. I, I got one minute left. Olivia, I'm going to rip Sorry. up the script here. I got Alan Blinder writing in the Wall Street Journal that disinflation is intact. Krugman's been pounding the table on this for months. You know the history of 47, 49 into the Eisenhower uh, deflation that we saw in 52. And, and you, that old come. <laughs> you just thank you. But Robert Solo is who you dedicated your book to at 98 years old. Do we yes. have any clue what in great shape? Do we we have any clue what we're doing, Olivier, given disinflation in place amid technology? Solo, the laureate Paul Romer, the should-be laureate Olivier Blanchard. Do we have a clue where we are given the technological progress that Solo invented? Yeah, I think I think we do, but there's uncertainty. Uh, I think there's the usual amount of uncertainty, which is, yeah, the economy is always changing, so you have to take this into account the response to interest rates changes as technology changes and so on. I think for the moment, we're roughly where we should be. It looks like we have it probably more or less under control. The really difficult issue, uh, Tom, is what is the unemployment rate that we can sustain? Can yeah. we basically get inflation down all the way to 3.5 as it is now and keep it there? Or do we have to accept slightly higher unemployment in order to stabilize inflation. And I think that's the big issue. That's where all kinds of technological well, issues come up, <clears throat> uh, matching, reallocation, all kinds of things like that. We are out of time. Olivia Blanchard at the Peterson Institute. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.